Welcome to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I speak to people who fund and support social innovation in different ways. Grant providers, impact investors of various kinds, angel investors, foundations, family offices and more. They talk frankly about how they work, how they make investment, grant and funding decisions, what they will invest in or support and what they cannot. They talk about the pros and cons of different sources of funding, share lessons and insights, and provide invaluable advice for any social entrepreneur or innovator looking to build and finance a sustainable social business. Our role in the ecosystem is really to seed things and then to encourage other financiers uh, to do follow-on capital. So part of our role is invalidating a startup's efforts as legitimate, as um, investment-ready, so to say, and uh, to kind of evangelize to foundations, for example, to start funding earlier than they typically might and to encourage investors to start thinking about impact investments as an opportunity in their own portfolios. We are, um, you know, in essence, when we first started, we were something of an experiment. So it isn't so much that there was an active community of angel investors and philanthropists investing and granting in the area of innovation for civic engagement. So in many ways, we are market makers as much as we are investors. So we think a lot about not just making sure that we are moving money directly into startups, but also about what are the other elements of a program that we might create that would encourage more financiers, donors, investors to consider this space as one to engage in. I'm very pleased today to introduce Christy George, Christy is director of New Media Ventures, the first seed fund and national network of angel investors supporting media and tech startups that disrupt politics and catalyze progressive change in the United States. She's overseen investment into a growing portfolio of non-profits and for-profits, including National Field, Some of Us, and Upworthy. Christy is passionate about fostering an independent, vibrant, and diverse media sector in the United States. Well, thank you very much, Christy, for taking the time today to speak to Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So um, it's a very exciting time, I think, for uh, New Media Ventures and uh, your work. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is exactly that you do and how you came to be involved? Sure. So New Media Ventures is a seed fund and a network of both investors and donors. We finance media and technology startups that are building advocacy movements, creating new narratives, and driving civic engagement. So we are at the intersection of media, technology, and politics. And uh, my background, I started my career in venture capital in the late 90s, and um, my passion is around media. So that company and that firm was invested in media companies. I moved from there to a documentary film distributor called Women Make Movies. And uh, my responsibilities were purely on the business side. I was responsible for acquiring and distributing a catalog of social issue documentary films. And I became really interested in what kind of more mainstream impact would look like or ways to get niche social issue documentaries kind of onto the screens and into the homes of people that might not otherwise see that content. So um, I went to business school at Oxford in uh, the UK, was a consultant for a few years, and then came back to the US, um, still thinking about media and how to mainstream impact media, but also uh, sort of newly interested in politics after the 2008 election. 
And I was trying to think of what I might do personally um, to, to be involved in the political process in a more active way because I had been out of the country for the 08 election. And kind of around the same time, a group of uh, investors and donors were thinking about starting an entity focused on uh, taking a venture capital approach to progressive change. So the timing could not be better um, for us to meet. And um, it was very much an experiment or an idea at the time. We didn't know if it would work. There was very little uh, track record or history of investment in the space in general. Um, but it absolutely um, was a sort of merger of both my professional experience and um, my new interest in political change and the levers of politics for social change. It's great, great to find a sweet spot like that. Doesn't always happen. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, what kind of media uh, organizations are you talking about? What kind of things are you interested in? And can you talk a little bit about how that space is evolving at this uh, crucial uh, time? Yeah. Happily. I will say that when we first got started and we were telling people that we were going to be investing in media companies as a means of uh, progressive and social change, people kind of thought we were crazy. It was 2010, so a little bit earlier than some of the kind of um, huge media companies that have developed since then. Um, but I often use Upworthy as a prototypical example of a new media ventures company when they were first getting started, they had simply a hypothesis that there was existing compelling social issue content out in the world. And uh, what that content needed was a little bit of reframing in order to find uh, new and expansive audiences for that content. So, you know, Upworthy started as a company that took social issue content and um, you know, made it go as viral as cat videos on the internet. And I think essentially Upworthy it ended up um, being a category creator in the media space and um, absolutely proved the hypothesis of there being audiences for uh, meaningful content on the internet. Um, and, uh, you know, it was recently announced a merger with Good Magazine. Um, so I think the space has evolved to such a point um, where this thing that was really an idea that people might not necessarily believe uh, four years ago has now kind of uh, merged with another social good media player. And I think the merger of those two entities will be um, incredible for the field in general. Right, right. Now, you mentioned venture capital. So presumably uh, inherent in this model, this idea is the idea of financial returns and that, you know, that that I, I guess venture capital uh, expect to make multiples of the investments that they uh, make, you know, returns because not every uh, investment is going to be successful. Um, so how does that work? Sure. So we think of ourselves as impact investors, and we really only work with investors that think of themselves as impact first investors. So that is to say that we certainly care about returns. We look at the business fundamentals of companies before we invest. We care a lot about what return uh, potential there is from a financial perspective, but we are also thinking a lot about social impact and, uh, and in some cases, environmental impact. Um, so the return profile of the companies that we invest in very widely, we are committed as an organization to supporting both grants, uh, both uh, nonprofit organizations and uh, for-profit companies. So that means we make investments as uh, equity investments. We make debt investments. We also make nonprofit grants from which we expect 
no financial return or money back, but we have a uh, certainly a high expectation uh, of impact. So the return potential is fairly variable depending on the company. Um, we had a company a couple of months ago that got acquired by Facebook. Um, and then we've got uh, companies that um, essentially have made their money back and no more. And we feel perfectly comfortable with both scenarios. Right, that's very interesting. Can you give me a sense of how the breakdown of that is across different kinds of uh, investments, whether it's, uh, as you say, equity and grants and profit and non-profit? Do you have any kind of general overview figures for that kind of thing? Yeah, we try to um, invest and have a portfolio that is 50% uh, for-profit companies, for-profit startups, and 50% nonprofit organizations. That varies at any given moment. For example, um, at the beginning of last year, we did an open call explicitly focused on uh, democracy and changing the rules of the game and increasing people power in political campaigns. As it happens, the companies and organizations or the organizations that rose to the top of the pack after a really thorough diligence process were all nonprofit organizations. And, you know, it may be that if you're really focused on democracy, the, you know, business models that are most effective and most impactful are nonprofit business models rather than for-profit ones. So in that moment, we probably skewed more nonprofit than, non than for-profit, but, um, you know, we always aim to um, have a mixture of both. Right, that's very interesting to have, have the mix. And for the nonprofits, then, what kind of investment structures would you be looking at? Would you be expecting to make re financial returns from that? We don't. So far, we don't. We are making straight up grants. We don't expect the money back. Um, we have experimented in the past or have thought about um, loans or recoverable grants. But to be honest, the the fact that we are focused on early stage organizations makes it really difficult to then say, oh, we're going to want our money back. It's pretty unfair, I think, to an early stage organization to set them up um, so early on before they've like actually found their customer base and their own revenue model to sort of saddle them with debt right away. I think that those kinds of structures are more appropriate for later stage organizations. And, um, you know, as an organization, we are particularly committed to supporting early stage efforts getting off the ground just because it is um, so hard to get that money typically. It's a lot easier if you've sort of proven your concept. Yes, this free money is, is terribly important and um, because there does seem to be uh, increasing amounts of uh, impact investment but not always um, willing to really compromise either in terms terms of the, the, the level of risk or uh, the levels of returns, but maybe we could talk about that a, a little later. Can you give me some idea of the, this, the, the scale of uh, your investments and grants? Yeah, sure. The range is actually pretty broad. So it's about $50,000 to a million dollars. We've got a fund, a seed fund called the New Media Ventures Innovation Fund that is specifically focused on the earliest stage entrepreneurs that are just, they've got a prototype and they need some money to kind of take things to the next level. And that fund puts in $50,000 into a company or organization. It's either convertible debt or a grant. And then what we do is we, um, kind of shop around those companies to our network of investors and donors who fill in uh, for follow-on funding. And, you know, it's variable depending on the company. Each investor makes his or her own decisions after we put our money in. And so it can be as 
high as a million dollars that gets raised or, you know, as low as $100,000. Right, right. But the grants generally are in the, the order of 50000 Would you give it per year or how does it work? Uh, we do a one-time grant, and in some cases we've done some follow-on grant money, but our role in the ecosystem is really to seed things and then to encourage other financiers uh, to do follow-on capital. So part of our role is in validating a startup's efforts as legitimate, as um, investment-ready, so to say, and uh, to kind of evangelize to foundations, for example, to start funding earlier than they typically might and to encourage investors to start thinking about impact investments as an opportunity in their own portfolios. That's great. I, you clearly think about that your role within the ecosystem and supporting and nourishing that to grow and develop. Yeah, we're, we are, um, you know, in essence, when we first started, as I mentioned, we were something of an experiment. So it isn't so much that there was an active community of angel investors and philanthropists investing and granting in the area of innovation for civic engagement. So in many ways, we are market makers as much as we are investors. So we think a lot about not just making sure that we are moving money directly into startups, but also about what are the other elements are of a program that we might create that would encourage more financiers, donors, investors to consider this space as one to engage in. So uh, we do everything from convening, uh, we bring together both our portfolio organizations and investors once a year for something called the New Media Ventures Summit. We are on the road a ton at various conferences, both funder-oriented and entrepreneur-oriented. Um, and we also do um, a bunch of writing to ensure that the lessons we're learning get out into the world. In uh, December of last year, we put out our first white paper focused on uh, business models in the social impact space. And, uh, you know, originally it was intended really for our portfolio organizations and the companies that were approaching us with questions in our, you know, very narrow investment space. But the feedback on the paper has been tremendous so far and the lessons are really relevant across sectors. So uh, we're incredibly excited about trying to think about ways that we might share more of what we're learning. We're a, we're a young, uh, scrappy institution. We don't have a ton of rules about what we should and should not do. So um, if people have questions, we're always very happy to be as open as possible about answers if we have them. That sounds great. That sounds great. Can you give me uh, maybe a final uh, statistic here to get a sense of the number of investments and or, or organizations you're, you, you, you supported? Yeah, our portfolio right now consists of 42 companies and organizations. We are in the middle of an open call for new project. So it launched yesterday and we are looking for startups um, that are focused on resistance and rebuilding um, in the uh, sort of wake of the presidential election. And so I anticipate that we will add maybe four to 10 more in the next uh, three months um, and perhaps even more than that. Right, right. I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the kinds of organizations uh, in a moment. Um, I, I'm interested in this question of impact first and what that actually means. And uh, yeah. I'm talking to Kevin Starr uh, from Malago a little bit uh, a little while ago, and he was talking about this question of, you know, what an impact investor really means and that, you know, there are certainly uh, no small number of organizations that 
it seems to be almost add on another lens. They're looking for the same kind of returns, maybe that they would in, in traditional investment, but they're also looking for you know a social uh, and an impact lens. And then there are other organisations that are willing to. They are genuinely willing to you know accept lower rates of returns or take on higher levels of risk. That you know that that has to be a meaningful part of what it is to be an impact investor. I'm just wondering, can you give me an indication or some uh, way of I guess dimensionalizing what this might mean in terms of investors that, that that you that you work with, what how they might look at that, whether they might say you know vis-a-vis uh, -vis market returns or you know how how they would think about the kinds of returns and indeed maybe the kinds of risks they're willing to take. Yeah, well, I should say that um, you know every investor that we work with has an entirely different um, way of thinking about this, and we try to honor that. And we always say that every investor is their unique uh, individual snowflake. Um, but I do think if people are coming to New Media Ventures and working with New Media Ventures, what they are signing up for is uh, almost inherently a higher level of risk. It's not just that we work in the impact investing space, but we're also in a space that is fairly nascent. The idea of political impact investing is um, incredibly uh, new as a concept. It's, you know, it's certainly not, uh, we always sort of think of ourselves as, you know, maybe five to 10 years behind something like clean tech or ed tech. Um, so I think people really understand that what they are doing is um, really taking truly early stage risk. And they're up for that. I think to a certain extent, um, the people that we started working with at the very beginning uh, were political donors first. And so um, their political contributions to progressive infrastructure organizations were primarily grants, and they were never looking for any um, financial return from them. So I think that has helped us cultivate a group of people who are actually in this for the right reasons for impact that are not um, that are sort of not calling themselves impact investors, but are looking for you know absolutely no trade off between. Um, you know, financial return and social impact. Like we are with people who absolutely understand that, um, you know, all investing is impact investing, that every investment has an impact and that they are realistic about internalizing uh, the kinds of impacts uh, that exist out in the world as a result of their investments. Right. So are you suggesting that uh, the main way in which the trade-off takes place is in terms of taking on higher levels of risk in the investment? Or are there uh, return uh, aspects as well? And I don't know whether you can talk a little bit about this. I mean, a, a company that expects to, you know, be making two or three percent as against, you know, fifteen or eighteen percent. Uh, anything you can say on the kinds of figures? Uh, bearing in mind, as you say, it's idiosyncratic, and everybody has their very personal view on this. Yeah, I don't think it is only on the risk side. It is. Um, and this is not true across the board for our portfolio, but we talk a lot about um, investing in thoroughbreds rather than unicorns. So um, there are plenty of companies, particularly our, on a, in our space, that aren't necessarily going to be that billion-dollar company, but will actually grow in revenue quite steadily, are profitable, will return money to investors, perhaps in the form of a dividend, and uh, are really wonderful investments for us. And we try to, as much as possible, champion the idea of 
what alternative exits look like, what a uh, different kind of successful company looks like. I think there's increasingly a group of investors that is realizing that as well as a group of entrepreneurs. It's sort of, um, you know, the kind of two-sided problem and opportunity. We need to see successful companies that fit that mold and we need to see investors willing to take risks on those kinds of companies rather than having an inappropriate expectation for them. Right, right. Maybe last question on this before moving on. So what, what would you think would be a good level of return? Oh, it's so dependent on the company. It's hard to quantify one level of return for every kind of company that we would invest in. You can't say anything at so, all uh, about kinds of returns. I, yeah, I can't, yeah, because it's so, uh, you know, as I said, we are investing in both software companies and um, media companies. So the kind of return in one space is not necessarily the kind of return you'd expect in another space. And um, it would feel unfair to say uh, 3% would be good or 8% would be good or 20% would be good. Um, only to say that we are um, perfectly comfortable with um, a non-market rate return if it's appropriate to the company. Right, right. Okay, that's very interesting. Now talk about the business angel side of things, because clearly there's an advocacy side of it as well here, isn't there? That this is a, the whole area of impact investment, though considerable momentum, but still, uh, I guess, reasonably uh, niche. And for many traditional, certainly traditional angel investors, this is a, a new area, a new space. And then within that, you have a very particular focus as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the world of impact investing is small and growing. There's an entire community of people that are evangelizing um, about the opportunities, benefits, challenges of impact investing as a space. As I had mentioned earlier, you know, I believe at some point, and this is, uh, you know, a colleague of mine had once articulated this way, that, you know, every investment has an impact and eventually all investing will be impact investing as we recognize all of the costs of the investments that we make. So, um, you know, that uh, when we think about um, financial returns that haven't taken into account detrimental environmental impacts that actually cost something, we're sort of not appropriately representing for those financial returns, in my opinion. So I think that the field, you know, is only growing, although it is small now. And then, as you say, our particular niche within it is um, tiny, but also growing. And as you can imagine, the um, election has meant that there is um, a huge wave of interest, both on the entrepreneur side and on the investor side in the kind of work that we do. So I suspect that, you know, while now the world of civic tech investing or political impact investing, media impact investing is uh, fairly niche within the broader field of impact investing. This intersection of media and democracy that has become so uh, just vivid um, in the wake of the election means that the field is only uh, going to be growing. Well, absolutely. I recently heard a uh, BBC program on Hara Arendt, and it was very timely. This discussion of activity, political activity, and what, all that goes with that, and the, the moral necessity of that. I also saw that I think somewhere that uh, a figure was something like 43, 45 percent of uh, I think for the Democrats, uh, pe 
people under 50 were intending to be politically active this year, which seems to be uh, quite a quite a high figure. And then you see, I guess this seems to be a common theme, really, doesn't it, among uh, progressives is how to keep the momentum uh, from the Women's March, for example, and also what other form these different kinds of communities of uh, interest and, you know, progressive media can take. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's um, amazing to me how much activity there has been since the election. And it has taken, as you say, so many different kinds of forms, whether it's getting out in the street for the women's marches or the protests at airports over this last weekend to very um, kind of nuts and bolts, not quite exciting and sexy calls to local representatives about particular issues and trying to figure out ways to sustain that over the next weeks, months, years that it's um, really going to take. So I think what I feel excited about is how many different kinds of efforts are springing up. I'm not one of those people who sort of thinks we need to immediately centralize and really figure out um, kind of one way for everybody to engage. What I find most exciting is that we're coming up with different ways for different kinds of people to engage because in my mind, after all, that's what it's going to take in order to have a democracy that is more reflective of the entire country. Yes, that's right. What about disruption here? Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of uh, things that are you find interesting in, in terms of disruptive progressive media? I don't know whether that's a term that's very well established. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really heard anybody say it that way, but it seems good to me. Um, I think that we are seeing um, people think about media in all different kinds of ways and thinking about disruption in all different kinds of ways. So some of the things that are most interesting to me right now are the ways, for example, in which people are using uh, channels like YouTube as distribution vehicles for content um, in ways that they are able to go direct to their audiences without the need for institutional support or a network or any of the kind of traditional um, layers or channels or support systems that were in place before. And uh, that has historically been leveraged, I think, more effectively by the right. But I think we're going to increasingly see all sorts of different kinds of people using um, things like YouTube and Snapchat to directly speak to uh, their constituencies, whether those are fans or uh, literally constituents um, in the case of an elected official. So that's one thing. I think um, the other thing that we are seeing that's pretty interesting are the ways people are self-organizing. Um, so they're using sort of media narratives to get people fired up. But then what they're actually just doing is using pretty simple technology and you know off-the-shelf tools like Slack and Google Docs to organize people in their local communities to advocate for uh, changes locally, given that the sort of challenge uh, nationally is uh, so large. So there's a lot of local organizing that's happening using media that is um, national in scope, but the action happens at the local level. And uh, as I mentioned, we've got this open call that's open right now, and we'll be looking at applications through March 3rd. And, um, you know, I suspect that we'll hopefully see a couple hundred uh, new ideas that we haven't even thought of yet as uh, ways to disrupt traditional media creation, distribution, and promotion. 
Right. That's fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about some of the business models that you think might emerge? Because I can see this huge groundswell and, as you say, this decentralized, you know, proliferation of networks and so forth. How how they actually make money and, and how that works financially is a, a, another question. I'm not sure I, I, I really uh, fully understand. I know I have spoken to some social entrepreneurs who've noted it quite difficult to raise money for platforms, technology platforms, uh, platforms that support yeah. other kinds of social media and other kinds of social uh, social entrepreneurial activity but in a way they find it quite difficult to pin down the 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 benefits they're providing because they're supporting others within a system as it were they've uh, found that challenging even a, a a crowdfunding organization that's very successful they found it quite difficult to, to raise funding as well so i don't know whether you you, you might have anything to say about around those two ideas well, um, I will put in a plug for this white paper that we did in December, which is profiling 10 different business models in the social change space with uh, example organizations from our portfolio. We are thinking a lot about business models specifically in the media space. And I think what we are seeing more and more is obviously less of a reliance on advertising as a revenue model. There's been tons written about um, the problematic nature of advertising as um, a revenue model for media companies in particular. But um, I think we're going to increasingly see lots of small dollar donors, like actually micro payments for uh, media projects. There was a lot made over the last, over the weekend about, for example, how much money an institution like the ACLU raised, which you know is usually in the four to $5 million range and was I think over the $20 million mark um, over a weekend um, from lots of individual people making small contributions and then larger donors doing creative matching. And, you know, that's for one organization in one particular moment in time. So, you know, one way that all of this political energy may manifest is in creating a new class of political donor that hasn't existed, that is truly like a micro donor. Um, that is thinking about the content that they want to see and are willing to pay for it. That's a guess. I think we'll see how it plays out. You know, people separating people from their money is a difficult thing to do. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. But uh, I think we're going to hopefully see lots of experimentation around it. It's one of our primary criteria as we're evaluating projects. And so uh, my hope is that through this open call, we'll actually see some uh, creative uh, attempts at solving the money problem in media. Yes, well, they often say that sometimes you need a burning uh, platform, a burning ship to <laughs> for change yeah. to happen. And if ever, if ever there was a time you could say that, this is surely it. Um, that's very yeah, exactly. interesting. Can you talk about the process that uh, you know organisations go through to raise money from new media ventures? You talked about this open call at the moment. Uh, how do people find out about it, and then what happens? Yeah, so um, we're really proud of the Innovation Fund because we hope that the process is as straightforward as humanly possible. We um, market the fund like crazy to social entrepreneur communities, to accelerators, to boot camps, to universities, to school programs, uh, to meetup groups. Um, and the goal is it is like a very straightforward process. There's probably a dozen questions, all of which, if you actually are focused and committed to your idea, you should be able to answer. Um, and uh, we take a look at those uh, applications. We recruit an investment committee to help us. And that investment committee's role is really to help us 
kind of um, solve for blind spots that we might have, solve for unconscious bias that we might have. Um, and uh, it is a group of active and experienced investors as well as grant makers. We then uh, create a kind of short list of usually something like 10 to 20 companies um, and we'll do interviews with those companies. And then um, we ask for financial information. Um, we ask for references. We call those references that have been given to us as well as references that we have within our network that might be familiar with the market um, or the customer base that the particular project is focused on. Um, and then we do a final interview and then we make a decision. And uh, we give uh, $50,000 grants um, or make $50,000 investments. And then after that, what we typically do is either an in-person demo day or a virtual demo day, um, which is to say that these organizations and companies get to do a live pitch for the investors and donors in our network if they're raising more money. Sometimes people are really working on a prototype for which $50,000 is enough, or they are a company that is not really actively looking for outside capital and $50,000 is, is enough. So in those cases, um, the investment or grant is the end of the process. In many other cases, it's simply the beginning. Right, right, great. How long does the process take on average? Uh, about three months, start right. to finish. That's, that's pretty prompt, isn't it? That's pretty swift. Um, now, um, can you talk a little bit about how the uh, social uh, entrepreneurs that you, 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 you meet, how they find the fundraising process or what your sense is of, uh, you know, it's a big topic, I think, in the field is the whole question of investment readiness. And I'm just wondering, really, whether there are a few bits of advice that you have to um, uh, aspiring uh, social entrepreneurs looking for funds. I think fundraising is hard, no matter what. Um, you know, I don't think it should be a, a total breeze. It's probably harder than it needs to be. And largely, that's because a lot of the um, institutions doing the financing, you know, as a field, we are not the best at transparency. So um, I think we could all as financiers do a better job on that front. Um, I have been impressed by how scrappy and creative and resourceful social entrepreneurs can be in securing financing. So um, the advice that I typically give people is, um, or maybe I should say it this way, um, the places where we see people kind of uh, stumble the most as they're uh, working on their financing is in not making clear who the customer is for what they are building, particularly in the social change space, right? It's very easy to tell a narrative about the lives that are going to be impacted, but it is not as clear who the actual customer is. And that is essentially who is paying for the product. So when you can't tell that narrative as clearly as possible, it makes it very difficult, unless somebody knows you and is willing to just give you money because of who you are, um, to convince someone to part with their money because it is not clear how that money is going to be returned to them. So um, the kind of customer for the product or service that you're creating needs to be as visible as possible. That's one thing. The second thing that I think social entrepreneurs can do is really to just create an atmosphere of demand around their um, project. So, you know, the more times you hear about a company or organization, the more interested in that company or organization you are. Investors talk to other investors. So, you know, even if someone passes the first time, it's not necessarily a no forever. So actually keeping people, um, i.e. prospective investors in the loop 
is among the most effective ways I've seen of people getting investment, maybe not the first time, but the second and third time. I think the worst thing that people can do is to treat the investment process as purely transactional. It is a very human um, interaction. And the more that you can keep in touch with people, not when you are explicitly asking them for money, but simply when you're saying, hey, this is my project, you seemed interested, and I wanted to just keep you in the loop. Um, before you're asking for money, the more prepared someone will be at the moment when you are asking for money. Great. That sounds like great advice, Christy. Um, what is your vision for new media ventures for the next five to 10 years? How do you think about that question? Well, we are really thinking about what it means to go beyond financing. And particularly in this moment, as I mentioned earlier, we have been inundated with people. This is uh, including investors, donors, technologists who believe in what we are doing, who believe in innovation uh, toward the end of increased civic engagement, who believe in uh, the role of advocacy, who believe in shifting narratives, and they just want to get involved. They may not be ready to cut a check right now, but they really have skills, time, talent uh, to donate to the movement. And so we've been thinking a lot about how can we think of new media ventures as more of a platform beyond money that is helping to recruit actual people to help movement organizations that are on the ground that are doing the hard work. So this might include everything from a sort of volunteer mentorship community to help startups themselves to um, actual technologists embedding within organizations. Um, we've had uh, more than a fair share of people saying, you know, after this election, I've realized that I really need to do something more important in my, with my life. And I'm quitting my job in Silicon Valley and I really want to work for a progressive organization. Can you help place me? So um, we're trying to think of what we do as uh, more of an intermediary between the progressive movement and the technology and financing communities. So that includes everything from money, but also includes technology and the diffusion of innovation and dissemination of technology tools to the diffusion and dissemination of talent as well. That's a very exciting vision, Christy, and a very exciting moment. So the two come together and I wish you the very best of success with new media ventures in the future. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Echoing Green. Echoing Green drives social progress further, faster, via its Global Social Entrepreneurship Fellowship, now running for 30 years. Echoing Green's new Impact Investing Program aims to bridge the gap between impact investors and social entrepreneurs to help build more resilient and financially stronger social impact businesses. You can find out more at echoinggreen.org. Thank you for listening to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. I hope you found this interview valuable. Please make sure to visit financingsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.